Welcome to another edition of the Ace Records podcast with me, Pete Perfides, a space in which I get to speak with a proven overachiever who has somehow managed to find a way to crowbar their abnormal love of records into what they do for a living. And uh, few people have managed to do that with as much panache and joie de vivre as the film director, screenwriter and producer we're about to meet. Uh, ever since he made the move from the groundbreaking sitcom space, which he directed, he's become one of the best-loved filmmakers of his generation. From uh, from Spaced, he brought Simon Pegg with him for the so-called Cornetto trilogy, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End. Uh, his unique vision also brought Scott Pilgrim versus The World and Baby Driver to the big screen. And once again, his understanding of how the right song at the right moment can elevate a film to truly transcendent place was central to the success of those movies. Uh, so perhaps it was only a matter of time before he used his lifelong scholarly adoration of cinema in order to make a music documentary and... As a lifelong fan of Sparks, a group whose own story, not to mention the cinematic sensibilities they brought to bear on so many of their own records, there was only ever going to be one contender for such a project. The director I'm talking about, of course, is Edgar Wright, and he's here staring at me. Well, what a lovely, what a lovely intro. It's quite disconcerting when people are just saying nice, nice things at you. <laughs> not, yeah, I, 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 I can't. On the rare occasions it's happened to me, I still haven't figured out what you do with your face. Uh, but, you know, you just have to just breathe, keep breathing, I think, is all you can do, really. I, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> that's OK. That's OK. Um, well, let's let's start with the immediate business at hand before we kind of delve into the past a bit. Um, you uh, I don't. I, uh, I don't really think I knew that you were a Sparks fan before I heard that you were making the Sparks Brothers. Um, but you are. It's a lifelong love, isn't it? It is, although I, I think it's only really like when I was sort of became older and I, I was able to understand the whole discography and even kind of figure out what records they'd released. <laughs> that yeah. Then I really started to become kind of obsessed. And that, and that was a process of not only hearing new stuff that they were were releasing but also delving back into the discography that existed you know before i was buying records what um why sparks and what i mean it could be it could have been any band any one of a number of bands but what is there something very such an unusual band to sort of get that involved with i think that's the reason in a way is because they i think because for a long time you know, uh, growing up in a pre-internet age and being a music fan required quite a, lo a lot of legwork <laughs> because unless they were a band that were like truly in the zeitgeist where you couldn't avoid them, like a, you know, like a, a Queen or a Duran Duran or Prince or something like that, where they're kind of, they're always on the radio and always on the TV and they're sort of inescapable. But with Sparks, I mean, at least to me, when I was kind of growing up, and I don't think I really started buying music magazines until I was, you know, 19 or 20. So really, like, my knowledge of music was what was on Radio 1 and what was on the TV, and that was about it. And so sometimes you could have a Sparks drought for five years, 10 years, mm -hmm. where they, you know, you would go... Like, like a long time without hearing of them. 
And so that would that would actually make when they would come back into my kind of airspace much more powerful yeah. because I'd, I'd seen them on top of the pops when I was five years old doing beat the clock and number one in heaven. Then um, I don't, I don't really remember like sort of seeing them much in the eighties at all. I know they, they did a couple of TV appearances in the UK, but they mm. didn't tour. And, and then it was actually later when I was a teenager, I sort of went through this kind of a phase of um, I guess, trying to extend my parents' record collection, which mm. uh, they had quite a, a good number of 60s albums but then I think their record buying stopped dead when they had me and my brother and so I sort of felt in a strange way that I you know having become obsessed with all of the 60s albums they did have you know then then it left me like baffled as to why they hadn't continued with like David Bowie and Roxy Music and Queen so in doing that and sort of maybe we'll talk about this a bit later but in a way retreating a bit from modern music into stuff that was slightly before my time yeah. Um, and, and listening to a lot of stuff that was like glam rock, you know, adjacent, spark up every again. And then I'd be a bit because I knew their Georgia Moroda 1979 stuff. But then if you had a compilation and girl from Germany was on there or this town ain't big enough for the both of us, I'd be like, huh, sparks. This is, <laughs> this is the beat the clock, guys. Now, this is all and I have to stress this and, you know, this as well, but you have to stress this for younger listeners. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so easy to type in Sparks discography <laughs> into like your uh, computer because they, that did not exist as a thing you did. So it, mm. they would just be a bit of a conundrum to me. And it maybe wasn't until they came back in the mid 90s in the UK with When Do I Get to Sing My Way on mm. gratuitous sax and senseless violins that I, I, I properly was able to piece it together. Or at least there were music magazines that were doing a bit of a history of sparks and and then it started to kind of come to light and and i think really where that turned from and then i think through that uh just then um having more disposable income in my early 20s buying lots of cds i then start reading the old sparks albums and then i think then from in in this century onwards this seems really weird to say this century but it's true i really was kind of dumbfounded by their trajectory in that it was different from any other band that have been going that long in that they were releasing new albums every couple of years and the new albums were really good and that to me seemed like quite uh, unique and so I think at that point where it turned from being like I love this band to I love this band to I'm like an evangelist for this band yeah yeah absolutely and and actually they're a, they're a good um I think they're an exceptionally good subject for a documentary because even people that like them a lot don't really know too much about them uh, as people. And, you know, it occurred to me just watching the story unfold uh, as you told it that um, I didn't even know much about sort of, you know, like their relationships and, um, you know, even their sort of sexuality. For some reason, there was something about Sparks where like their musical world was so self-contained that it almost sort of, you know, it sort of, it repelled my curiosity about what being Sparks outside of Sparks was like. And I realised that, oh my God, I actually really do want to know about this band, you know. Well, I think some of that is by design because they, they I think they, 
adhere to that idea that um and this goes for movie stars as well as rock stars they they, they adhere to the idea that the enigma of a, a band is is maybe more interesting than the reality so i think there's an element where they're kind of happy to remain question marks and and actually in the documentary you know the one thing that was off the table which i totally respected in terms of having kind of full access to them is they said they didn't really want to talk about relationships and and I I totally respect that because I think their theory is like the drama is on the record. <laughs> and I think yeah, it is. I get that. It's like the, what what they present on record is like an operatic version of their lives or whatever you know story they're telling or whatever observations they have about lives or whatever characters they're playing is sort of is more dramatic and cinematic than maybe their real life is. And, and, and in, in a way that puts it kind of, it, you know, in stark contrast to a lot of other music documentaries where the tabloid elements of it start yeah. to outweigh the, the discography. And that, that said, and you've seen the film, but there are bits where, even though they said they wouldn't talk about relationships, there's little bits where that, those stories poke through and they're kind of my favorite bits in the documentary because well, they're like <laughs> diplomatic their diplomatic veneer that they're presenting cracks every now and again and uh, sometimes collapses into smirks and and those are my favorite bits but, well, but there's I, a wonderful bit where like you know because obviously a lot of uh, sparks fans know about you know the duet with jane weedling from the go-go's cool places uh i wouldn't have Dare. I wouldn't have had the temerity to imagine that that that, that they might have uh, that Russell and Jane might have had a relationship off the back of that, but of course they did. Well, you know, Jane was Jane was one of the last interviews we did actually, and um, and she also when I interviewed her, I got to give credit to my uh, producer George Henkin, Georgina Henkin. So mm. just to, because she had done a phone interview with Jane. And I think maybe because it was me, she, like Jane had sort of presented a more diplomatic version of events. And eventually George came on camera and said, Jane, tell me what you tell me on the phone. <laughs> 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 Which I, so I have to give full credit to George because, you know, that Jane said, oh, OK, I'll tell, I'll tell the real story. Now, now, the thing that's funny about that is that on the flip side is that Russell, like, in a, it, I, I think in a, in a um gentlemanly way just won't comment on something like that it's not like it's not it's not in his nature to sort of brag about things and like you know and he just didn't want to talk about it at all in that in that way hmm. but jane did for him and then the funniest thing is in documentary is jane says this thing that she also admits to having a crush on ron <laughs> and oh, yeah. i swear to god ron mail said that that was his favorite part of the documentary i said because when they watched it i said what was what was uh, some of the biggest revelations to you and ron just said oh jane weedlin saying that she had a crush on me as well this is this is major news <laughs> well, she the 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 kind of poignant thing about that is that the point Jane is making is that uh, you know you have maybe a more idealized notion of what a kind of uh, handsome guy is when you're younger, but as you sort of uh, as you get older, that kind of evolves and your tastes evolve with it. So, unless I misremembered it, I think the point she's sort of making was as she got older, then maybe a kind of Ron type of guy was the, uh, <laughs> was more the thing, you know, and actually I love that because one thing that I, I was surprising to me was that the sort of, you know, Ron 
is there's a kind of melancholy to 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 Ron and um you know this kind of outsider melancholy to Ron like the guy who knows he can probably wouldn't wouldn't be anyone's number one choice for the prom date and and stuff like and I never I never thought that I don't know why I just never thought that that was an issue with him do you know what I mean um yeah I mean I think it's one of the things where with Sparks generally, and I think sort of if sometimes it had been an element of confusion for maybe more mainstream listeners, it's also the reason that you and I are sitting here talking about them 50 years later. It's because there's a lot to unpack with Sparks. And, and that's great because like the fact that there's a lot to sort of discuss about it is, is the reason that people obsess over a band like this. And one of the things I think is that you have Russell, who's a very conventionally handsome front man, singing these lyrics about not being able to get the girl yeah. and and it, and it isn't that you you don't immediately think oh yeah this is written by his brother who's yeah. standing next to him glowering <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i mean it, and, it, and in that in that sense it puts them in a sort of long in a sort of tradition which takes in you know people like um well the who uh, most obviously spring to mind where you've got, you know, and as I get older, I'm, I get more fascinated by the differences between Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. Uh, and especially mm, yeah. Roger Daltrey kind of becomes this kind of slightly surly Brexity sort of uh, kind of angry, you know, retired cab driver. And, uh, um, and but yet still, in, in, in a way, he's still a brilliant vessel for these songs that are written by Pete Townsend. There's obviously a very different sort of character to him in many ways. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it works. Sometimes it just works. In the case of Sparks, obviously, it works like a dream, you know. So, um, so yeah. Well, you, the, the other thing that's interesting, I'm oh, sorry. I was going to no, say no, the no. other thing that's interesting about them is I think what and what they say in the documentary, which, which I actually, you know, right at the end of the documentary process, I think I record, I interviewed them for like nine hours. And right at the end, I interviewed them separately, which is a bit like uh, an episode of Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> like, because <laughs> it was like Russell was in another room and then Ron was in another room. And, and uh, it's not like they're identical twins, but they both stuck around whilst the other one was doing the solo interview, in, sitting in the green room, wondering how the, the interview was going. But, but in those things, a, a little less guarded. And, and they do say that, I think where they had a really healthy relationship as brothers in rock is there's the uh, uh, an understanding, an almost unspoken understanding of like they can't do what the other one does and they're completely comfortable with that, mm. you know. Um, and, and I think that's really sweet because I think in most other brother bands where there's some acrimony, it's because like two people want to be the lead Barry and Robin Gibb kind of both yeah. want to be the lead yeah. singer of the Bee Gees. Like Noel and Liam Gallagher both want to be the star. You know, Dave Davis wanted to do more lead vocals and sort of be the star of the Kinks, you know, or e equal yeah. to his brother at least. So that's always the problem when there's some, you know, the fact that Ron and Russell don't have that, I think is really sweet. It's, it's, it's the reason they've managed to keep making music for 50 years. And I think also just the way they work together now where they share all credit, like all of the, the songs actually just say written by Sparks now, um, regardless of who does what. And I think the thing is, is because they, they do genuine, 
genuinely collaborate on everything and even just down to producing and engineering you know i was saying this the other day as i i was um russell i think is the only lead singer that i can think of it's also his own engineer he's his own glenn johns setting up his own mic for his own <laughs> vocals it's brilliant and um it's sort of um yeah, you t- you touched on something earlier on with that. You know, that's they, they were. You know, it is hard for younger people to sort of get a sense that, you know, if if a band weren't regularly hitting the charts, then your knowledge of them was going to be sort of scattershot. So in a way, it's it's easier for you know you're sort of doing a backdated favor to a lot of people by just sort of like presenting it as this fantastic sort of arc. You know, um, having said that. Um, you, you know, you must have to think very carefully about what your next job is going to be. And um, so to commit to a sort of Sparks documentary, a feature-length Sparks documentary, it must have really been, I think, about all the other things that you might have turned down. And that that speaks for itself, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it was something where, yeah, I mean, the the good the good news was I was able to kind of for the first time in my life properly like multitask and and sort of do two things at once in that I knew that last night in Soho which is my film that comes out at the end of October I knew that was going to be my next movie and I had written it and in the time we're sort of prepping it I was able to you know spend I guess like a a good nine months on Sparks just in terms of I think we started shooting in like summer 2018 and went right through into the following year, um, which took me around the world as well. I, I London, Los Angeles, New York, Mexico City, Tokyo. It's just kind of wild. Um, and but in that time, I was also kind of like prepping the next movie. And and then it, and then when I made Last Night in Soho, the we started editing Sparks at the same time. And and then when. I was editing last night in Soho. I did some more filming on Sparks. Like I filmed Ron and Russell on the set of Annette, the uh, the movie musical they have coming out this summer, directed mm. by Leo, Leos Carrots. Um, that was actually until literally Saturday night was the last time that I saw Ron and Russell in person. <laughs> we finally <laughs> we finally reunited like over dinner, like seeing each other. I mean, we'd done like a, a zillion zooms in the interim, but we hadn't actually literally been in the same room until Saturday night. Well, yeah, I, I say I say in the same room we sat outside because of COVID. I, well, I know you sat outside because I noticed just by chance that Mike Mike Myers' yes. brother posted a photograph because um, you just by chance Mike uh, Paul Myers and Mike Myers uh, were out and they they and they saw you guys there. So you kind of all you were all photographed together, weren't you? Yeah. Well, what's crazy is I also hadn't seen Mike Myers since early 2019 when I did his interview in New York Uh, I'd never met Paul in person and Ron and Russell had never met Mike Myers Um, like you know he's in the documentary but they'd never met him and he'd never met them obviously so there was a funny thing we were having dinner and like I had my back to them and they they, they, (laughs) like Mike Myers and Paul Myers stood there for like a full minute before somebody turned around they they wait they stood there waiting to be seen Oh. And then we all turned around like, whoa, okay. So it was, it was very, I mean, it, it's been a very sweet thing through this process, this documentary to actually introduce Ron Russell to people that they love, but have never met. Like they love Mike Myers and they were really happy that he was in the documentary. But even when I was, I was doing some interviews with Ron Russell in London, because I, 
I did in- interviews with them in London and in Los Angeles. Hmm. And a really sweet story as an example, because you sort of imagine that all famous people know each other, but that's not true, is that I was, re- I was interviewing um, Stephen Morris and Gillian Gilbert from New Order. And then afterwards I was interviewing Ron and Russell. And then both bands did the same thing, which I thought was really sweet, is Gillian and, and Stephen said, hey, uh, is it okay if we stay a little bit afterwards and say hi to Ron and Russell because we've oh. never met. And Ron and Russell messaged and said, hey, is it okay if we come in a little <laughs> bit earlier and meet Stephen and Gillian from New Order? And then in the canteen in an Is- Islington, like, um, you know, studio, like Sparks and New Order met for the first time. So it's those things are just really those sweet. Those are great, that rem- Yeah, that's, I remember a couple of years ago when um, I, I, uh, when I was hosting uh, the show, my show on Soho Radio, and uh, I managed to persuade Gilbert O'Sullivan to, to 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 sit in for the entire two hour show with me. And the the band that were on next uh, on the next show were the Lemon Trees and not the Lemon Trees, the Lemon Twigs. Um, and uh, and they just they instantly recognized Gilbert O'Sullivan. They just completely like, you know, swooped upon him and just gave him all this fanboy adoration of course that's lovely for someone like gilbert who maybe at times feels as being a little bit forgotten or overlooked yeah and you can just kind of gaze on almost paternally at this lovely scene being played out in front of you um so um it's really sweet and you know they're sort of uh you know i I love it when sparks kind of mention quit when sparks talk about queen uh because there is this sort of sense that you know, they were almost sort of neck and neck at one point, but it was kind of, it was Queen in the long run and not Sparks. But of course, maybe it could never, it couldn't have been any other way, really, could it? No, I think, I mean, it's funny because uh, I did talk to Brian May about um, Sparks and and I was trying to get him in the documentary, which ultimately didn't work out. But I must admit, when I first, when I mentioned it to him, because I'd got to know Brian through Baby Driver, actually, because I used Brighton Rock in in its entirety, which I think was yeah. shocking to him. <laughs> he literally said to me, he said, he goes, oh, yes. Oh, usually in, in films, they just use the intro and then fade it out. And then I was <laughs> stunned to hear Brighton Rock in its entirety. Anyway, so I mentioned that. I said, I'm doing a documentary about Sparks. And the first thing that Brian May said, he goes, those guys are real musicians. He goes, those guys, are, I guess. He didn't say they were really talented. He goes, they are really talented. Goes, and he did say like, he said, in fact, a friend of mine said he saw them live recently and they were fantastic. Yeah. And then he said, will you say hello to them for me? And I, and I passed it on to Ron and Russell and they were obviously, you know, very touched by that. But I think there's that thing like, you know, because sometimes I think people try to build up some sense of um, rivalry or animosity between the two bands. But I'm not entirely sure that's true because, well, there's two things is that maybe in the kind of Sparks first two albums in 1971, 1972, and then Queen's first album is 1973. And there are things I, in the first two or three Queen albums that are quite Sparks-ish. Mm. You know, like even a song like Killer Queen is, is very Sparksy. Yeah. But then there's a point where the bands diverge. I don't think that you could yeah. say that the later Queen stuff sounds like Sparks. No. And also, I think Ron and Russell, I don't think probably ever really had the time to be eaten up by bitterness or anything because by the time somebody's maybe you know profiting from a sound that they kind of helped kind of bring in they've already they're already two genres ahead by that point <laughs> you know, they've already moved on 
at least once, if not twice. So I don't know whether they ever, I don't know whether that was something that would ever like bother them that much. Or even now, like, I mean, I'm sure if you, if you said to Ron and Russell now, Hey, would you like queen size success in 1975? Or would you like, would you like what you have right now? I bet you they would choose the latter. Of course. And, you know, that's the thing. That's a function of growing older as well. You know, we sort of we eventually take ownership of our story and, you know, almost kind of feel as, as proud of the adv- of the adversities that we um, as we do of the 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 kind of the the, the successes, uh, which I guess is why, you know, you often get people just to sort of you know who went to sort of um particularly um harsh boarding school saying well it never did me any harm because you sort of like build it into your story don't you um talking of queen and this is quite a good i guess this is as good a jumping off point as any uh you mentioned brighton rock and also you know you've there'd be a couple of moments in your films where you've used you know you've used queen songs in a just a in a an absolutely brilliant and totally sort of uh memorable way uh, the other, of course, being um, "Don't Stop Me Now" in in Shaun of the Dead. Um, I mean, that's kind of uh, one of the great things about the way you work is it's almost the tale of music. Often wags the dog of cinema, doesn't it? So, in terms of like you have the idea for like a scene or something, and it has to be that song, doesn't it? And then that sort of determines yeah. what you do visually. Yeah, I mean, very much so. And I think actually, I mean. Space had a lot of contemporary music in, but it, but in Shaun of the Dead, that was a scene where the scene was written for that song, and you know I think it we it was the first example which I've done many times since of we have to clear the song before we start shooting because yeah. otherwise we can't we can't sh- we can't shoot that scene without knowing we definitely have that song, and the reason I picked Don't Stop Me Now, and what's funny I don't want to claim credit for it being like um. I don't want to claim credit for it being more famous than it used to be. But when we made Shaun of the Dead, I think Don't Stop Me Now was like maybe the 15th most famous Queen song. Like, <laughs> and I think it was maybe through our film and then a bunch of adverts that it's now like the second, like Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's always like, Don't Stop Me Now. If you look on it, Spotify, it's enormous. But back then it was like num- track number 11 on the greatest hits or whatever. And um What's funny is that the reason that I picked Don't Stop Me Now was A, I really loved it. And I thought it's such a kind of, it's the it's the song in the Queen catalogue that is the closest to a Broadway showstopper. Yeah. And then I went to see the Queen musical, We Will Rock You, I think, before mm. Shaun of the Dead, maybe in 2002. I took my mum and dad and my brother. Mm. And I didn't, I mean, uh, apologies to Ben Allen. I did yeah, not no. like it. Um, and what particularly annoyed me is that Don't Stop Me Now, the most obvious big number, was not in the show. <laughs> and I was like, and actually it's in the show very briefly where they do a joke where somebody starts singing it and then somebody yeah. else says, stop. And then they never oh. play it. And I was and I was like thinking, why would you not use Don't Stop Me Now? I, I later found out that Brian May has kind of like doesn't care for it as much. And it was a, it was a, a full on Freddie kind of number. Um, oh. But uh, anyway, so we... We wanted to clear that song for Shaun of the Dead. And funnily enough, the reason that You're My Best Friend um, by Queen is also in Shaun of the Dead is because back when we were writing Shaun of the Dead, we had green, uh, I had Queen's greatest hits on CD. Mm. And the song after Don't Stop Me Now was You're My Best Friend. So after listening to you, 
Don't Stop Me Now several times, you know, on the CD, like, you know, we'd always go on to the next track. And eventually I said to Sam, said, hey, this should be the end credit song because the first lyric is, ooh, you're making me live. You're, ooh, <laughs> you're my best friend. And it's like the end scene of Sean of the Dead is like his friend's a zombie yeah, and, yeah. It, and his best friend is, you know, he's still with him. So, you know, also, friendship is a big part of you know those films as well, not just that one, but oh know. yeah, but that that but the second song, "You're My Best Friend," is literally a function of it being next up on the greatest hit CD. Oh really? <laughs> do you know? Do you know the? But do you know the B? Do you know what the B um, plan was? If we couldn't clear, don't stop me now. What? What's that? Boney M. Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I get, I do get when I watch your films, I get retrospectively anxious about clearance. And, um, and I, you know, so obviously with something like, you know, um, it, um, like Bell Bottom in, in Baby Driver or Harlem Shuffle, which mm. is kind of amazing. And, you know, that's like, that's like a single take for a really, really long time, isn't it? On, um, yeah. on the, I mean, that's amazing. Just that visually alone, but, but setting that aside for a second, um, you know, I, I sort of worry because I sort of think that, you know, like if they, if the people who own, whoever owns Harlem shuffle these days knew how badly you needed it for, <laughs> for that to, to work, then they might sort of, raise the price by 10 times or something or maybe it doesn't work like that but i sort of so i have these slightly retrospective anxieties when i when i watch you know scenes in your films where only a particular song could only ever have worked or at least that's how it seems do you know what i mean yeah i mean you know i i i've worked with some amazing clearance people over the years like Nick Angel, Kristen Lane, um, Kathy Nelson, like sort of, and, you know, you work really hard on that aspect. And, and I think it's something where, you know, some, you do always have to have a B option up your sleeve. And, and sometimes there's been things, there were a few things in Baby Driver where there were songs that I wanted to use where they were sampling tracks and I couldn't use the song because there was an issue with the sample. So sometimes I went back to the source. Like there actually in Baby Driver, there was a Mr. Scruff song that I wanted to use, but we couldn't clear it because of the sample. So eventually I thought, well, why don't I just, and then the, the sample was Alexis Corner's version of Early in the Morning. So oh. I was like, well, let's use that. So it was like, so we actually in weird ways went back to the source sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's there's been very few times, I've been very like fortunate to, and I think also, I think also, because if you use a, a song successfully in something like Quentin Tarantino is obviously like the king of doing this, it's in his movies, you know, it's such a huge boost for that song. Hmm. Um, so you would hope that sort of publishing companies and, and record labels and the artists kind of understand that in terms of if it's used yeah. well, it's like a big boost. I mean, I, I looked it on, I'm not sure kind of use Spotify as the metric for everything, but um. Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. So I was sort of tracking it. Before Baby Driver came out, it had 250K streams. Hmm. And then after, after Baby Driver, it was like 15 million. <laughs> wow. so it's, sort of, it's sort of wild, isn't it? Yeah, because everyone wants to, you know, because every, you get to be, you want to create scenes in your life in which you're the protagonist 
in the, in a similar fantasy or as close to that fantasy as you can probably uh, recreate as you're sort of trying to kind of um, negotiate the North Circular Road at 10.30 in the morning, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, it was, I mean, it's funny. I, my my, my, my bell bottoms uh, is linked forever in my head, aside from the movie, is um, when I first started conjuring up the idea for Baby Driver, I was 21. Like the idea existed a long, long time before I actually shot it. And it was when I had, I think I had copied Orange by the John Spencer Blues Explosion off my brother's friend, Paddy. And so I had a, a scene, you know, a C45 or C90 or whatever with um with Orange on one side. I can't remember what was on the other side. Maybe the band Whale or something like that. But um, but anyway, I would listen to Bell Bottoms over and over and over again in my bedroom in a flat that I used to live in in Bounds Green. So what's funny is that the two, the two kind of images in my head to do with like Bell Bottoms are the movie, you know, but also... Um, being in a bedroom in Bounds Green with a leaky radiator and listening to bell bottoms on repeat. The Bounds Green must have magical properties because that's where uh, um, Arthur Matthews and Graham Linehan wrote Father Ted. Um, so um, I think maybe more creative people should it, should, should live in Bounds. It Green. also it also features in the opening scene of Spaced as well because we actually went back to Middleton Road and uh, oh, which is where I used to, yeah that's where I used to live. I used to live on Middleton oh, Road. Um, ninety something, ninety ninety a maybe something like that. <laughs> well, you know the uh, I, I've got to obviously this is you know we're here we're talking about music a lot and um, I want to so we've got to talk about the record box scene in Shaun of the Dead. Yes, uh, I've got a theory. Um, so that I've got a theory that the, it's just a hunch. Uh, it's probably wrong, but you can tell me. Um, your use of Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits in Hot Fuzz is that an, <laughs> is that an apology for having been unnecessarily rude about Dire Straits in Shaun of the Dead? I think um, <laughs> I think uh, you know what's funny is with that record box scene. I know I mean not not necessarily no, but like you know at least kind of we slagged off Dire Straits in Shaun of the Dead and then paid for one of their songs in Hot Fuzz. So <laughs> so let's say let's say yes. One of the funny things about that is for that record box scene, if you watch it closely, the records that you actually see are the ones where people gave permission for us to use the cover. Um, And and even though Dire Straits is thrown at a zombie, you don't actually see the cover because um, Dire Straits had said no to us using the cover. And I think Simon Pegg had written this amazing letter to Mark Knopfler, which is quite a tricky balancing act where you're saying, we we love we love you, but also can we trash your record in this film? And quite rightly, Martin Knopfler said no. But you know who said yes and was totally fine with us trashing her record was Sade. So I always thought Sade was the coolest because we we smash a copy of Diamond Life, and yet she like did, sort yeah. of she she was totally fine with it. And and I always I've never met her, um, but I was always thought she was so cool for doing that. I mean yeah. it was. It would, the other the other thing in that scene as well, which a lot of people remark upon, is the fact that Sean saves the second coming by the Stone Roses, yeah. because <laughs> because Simon particularly is one one of the people who's saying, "Hey, I think that's underrated that album. I think people are too hard on the second coming." So that was yeah. that was literally Simon talking. Fantastic. <laughs> well, it, you know, second coming has its moments. I mean, Love Spreads is 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 just a 
an indisputable classic, you know, but some of it's quite hard going, I think. But hey, um, what about so? Um, yeah, this um, I guess, you know, you've spoken about it before, but this kind of this this understanding that music is central to the experience of watching a film. I mean, it goes goes back a long way with you. And we've spoken about American Werewolf in London oh, yeah. uh, before. But yeah, that sticks out for me because that's definitely, you know, that I, you know, I, I became obsessed with pretty much every single piece of music that was used in that film. And often you have these very um you know, I always, I, I absolutely love those moments where you get, um, there's a slight juxtaposition between, there's a sort of synergy between what you're watching and what you're listening to. And the reason that synergy exists is because the, the, so, the song is anything but obvious um, it, when it's, it, the, 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 the selection of the song changes everything effectively. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I first saw that, um, I had an aborted, attempt to watch that when I was 10 when it was on BBC one for the first time and my mum and dad let me and my brother stay up and then decided halfway through that it was too gory and we should get a bed so that was I saw the first half of it when I was 10 and then I saw the rest of it a couple of years later but I was it was one of those films and this is a, a, there were a lot of like 18 films like this for me where I was fully obsessed with the film and knew everything I could about the film without actually having seen it. And American Wealth in London was definitely one of those films. And, and it was definitely my first um, awareness of what counter scoring was, which is what you just described oh. of like a, a, the idea of a, a song seemingly in the complete kind of the opposite mood of what's happening on screen. And, and the perfect, the perfect example of that is the transformation sequence, the amazing transformation Oscar winning sequence, um, where they use Sam Cooke's cover of Blue Moon, and which is beautiful and mellow and soulful, and is and is contrasted by David Norton having this excruciatingly painful transformation. So that was something that really stuck with me. And then the other big soundtrack moment in that film, which I'm I just kind of obsessed about, to the fact that I taped all of the songs off. <laughs> off of VHS. I think I taped it off the TV and then I taped off right. of VHS onto a cassette because American Wealth in London, amazingly, never had a soundtrack album, bizarrely. Really? Yeah, there's wow. like one of those weird like Miko um, impressions, like a disco yeah. uh, 12-inch or Miko's impressions of an American Wealth in yeah. London. I'd which buy they that. Actually, which they actually mention in the end credits, but there's no, no soundtrack, which is bonkers. Um, anyway... But the point is going to make that the other cue, which kind of like really just, I still think is one of the most thrilling bits of pop music in film is the cut to black at the end, the end of the movie and like spoiler alert, the werewolf dies. And, you know, you're left with like the werewolf is shot. Then you see, then Jenny Agatha runs over to the werewolf's body. Then you see it's not the werewolf. It's now a dead David Norton with, you know, bullet holes in him. And then Jenny Agatha starts crying and, this because I had that when I taped it off the video, I, I had Jenny Agatha's crying just before the song. So I know Jenny Agatha's sniffs as well as I do the actual, she literally goes, <laughs> and then bang. And then it cuts into the doo-wop version of Blue Moon by the Marcells. And I always think that's one of the greatest cuts to black in cinema. It's amazing. And it never, every, every time I watch it and I've seen that film, maybe more than any other film that, 
cut to the end credits with that music is just perfection to me. Is that, is that because there's a sort of slight brutality about it that like? Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's just it's just like the sort of you get whiplash from the change in tone. It's like you're it's so sad because you're you really like David Norton and the character of David Kessler. And then he's dead and it's brutal. And Jenny Agata's upset, which nobody wants to see Jenny Agata in torment. And then it cuts to this, you know, incredibly upbeat doo-wop cover of, of Blue Moon. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's really like just this, like, it is savage. It's like, that's like, like the final joke of the movie is like, cheer up everybody, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it is quite, it is totally brutal. I mean, it's re- sometimes I say, you know, often I say, I think uh, an American world in London is probably the reason I live in London because there's just something so aspirational about seeing David Norton slide up those sash windows and let himself... <laughs> While you while you hear, while you hear the traffic in the background, the, the London, tra- you know that kind of almost synesthetic, um, you know, uh, thrill of the the slide of the sash windows and the traffic in the background, and the sense of like, you know, cool young people just kind of climbing into people's flats, you know, through through the front window, and then having amazing sex afterwards. I mean, of well- course, you'd want to move to London. <laughs> Well, it, it, I mean, interestingly, John Landis, I think, wrote the first draft when he was a teenager. And that and that is very clear when you watch it, because it does have some some adolescent fantasy elements to it, like the idea of being in London for the first time on your own and, and happening to be invited home by the sexiest NHS nurse of all time. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's like, it's like the idea that Jenny Agatha is just saying, come home with me and we'll immediately start having sex is like, wow. So when you're a teenager watching that, or even over when I was 10 years old watching that, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> John Landis would have grown up in the 60s and one, you know, one imagines that, well, at least I have this kind of notion in the 60s that people were really... And, and to be honest, I've got quite a few friends who were in that age group, and and they, certainly around musician circles, who were... who you know, It's great, because they're all in their 70s now, and they talk about just having, you know, they were just like... They were sort of having sex with their friends just because you could, because everyone, you know, contraception was available, and, you know, and why wouldn't you? And um, so I guess maybe... It's almost sort of hangover from John Landis having grown up in the sixties, or, or you know, uh, that 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 kind of carries over into into that world. Maybe. Well, what's funny about that film as well is that both of us saw it as a sort of a, 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 a design for life in a movie where like his best friend dies and like and he kills several people, but it still feels like you're watching it thinking, "Wow, I want to go to London. I want to be in a porno theatre." Surrounded by zombies. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, true. I mean, t- t- cinema and television make everything aspirational, I guess. You know, so everything yeah. kind of seems like uh, a, a good idea. But that kind of uh, that disparity between a sort of certain perception of being in London, uh, that th- when you make the move and when you don't make the move, and that kind of brings me on to the world's end, which um, is. You know, almost painful in some ways because I I I sort of think it's Simon Simon's greatest performance. Um, I agree. All oh, right, it's just kind of so uncomfortable watching that depiction of the le- the guy who was the ledge, you know, back in the day. Yeah, and um, and it's not really working for him anymore. But he doesn't quite know how to sort of shift it down. 
and it just and you just ate but again it's uh, the way that you use you know song like so young by suede uh, oh man it just it just what it's perfect for all of that you know uh i i really appreciate that because i uh I, you know there's it's it's a bit more challenging in a way than um Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz because it does have much more melancholic moments. And also I think what it's, you know, we wrote that film in a way as a sort of, we had already had the idea for the film, but um, I mean, and Simon's talked about this publicly since. He didn't talk about it when we were promoting the movie, but but later he opened up about his kind of addiction issues with alcohol. And, And in a sense, when we were writing that, film it was sort of like me and simon talking about the elephant in the room in a way that we like it's very british people you don't like to talk about those things but it's 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 somehow easier to write a film about it than it is to talk about it so it is that thing that you know and and in a way gary king is that thing where it's like it's a sort of it's people that we've known and it's also sometimes the people that we've been, or sometimes it's the person that you fear becoming. Yeah. And um, and I think it's all of those things rolled into one. And mm. and and also the use of all of the kind of early, late eighties, early nineties music is those things that become even more melancholic with a remove, like sort of suede so young being a great example. And and that was definitely the idea is that there are a lot of those you know and other songs in it that that. They're, they're designed to be bittersweet so you know something oh, like pulp pulps you know do you remember the first time yeah. but then then you when you couple it with people who are kind of like hitting 40 it's it, it makes it sort of maybe hopefully more even more vivid you know oh totally yeah and i, I you know I'm, I'm free by the suit dragons uh, old red eyes is back which you know by yeah that's which i think is such a um it's such an underrated song it's just uh oh, i agree i agree because it's not, and you know, I think in this kind of, I mean, increasingly, I guess, in the sort of cancel culture era, you know, the stuff I'm really interested in is kind of stuff that just is just nuanced and isn't really coming to a conclusion. The stories which don't uh, it don't really come to any hard and fast conclusion about their protagonist, and uh, and so in that sense, Old Red Eyes is back is just is just a more valuable song than ever. I think you know. Um, one one of the lines in the film was something that uh, <laughs> I won't, won't mention my friend's name because I don't want to embarrass him, but it was just a sweet, funny thing to me is that there's literally a bit of dialogue in the script that happened to me when I was driving down to a wedding with my friend and he was playing a cassette, which in, in, in real life, it was ACDC. And uh, I said, uh, I was listening to this song, which I hadn't heard in like 20 years. I said, wow. I said, I put this on a tape for you, didn't I? And he goes, yeah, this is the tape. <laughs> Yeah. And it was it was one of those things where I don't know why it struck me as a bit sad, but it was it was actually in that case it was quite sweet. He he dug out the tape to play it, but in in the film we play it as a sad thing. As Paddy Considine says, he goes, "Ah, oh, I haven't heard the Soup Dragons in ages. I put this on a tape for you, didn't I?" And, and Gary says, "Yeah, same tape. Like like he like he's been." But in the, in the case of the movie, it's like the idea that he's he's been playing this tape for like 20 years, you know, or 22 years. It's beautiful. And it really, under, you know, you actually, I love the way that that line is kind of undersold. It's not really sort of, it's just over almost as soon, you know, there's no, no, it's not hammered home. And it's, it's, it's all the more poignant for that. It's just gone as soon as it's arrived. You know, I sort of like, I remember 
there are people, you know, I remember, you know, one of my best friends when I was growing up was, um, you know, we sort of, we, um, you know, we were both into sort of like Adam and the Ants and synth pop and all of that sort of stuff. And I thought, I sort of thought the deal was in our friendship that we would just keep getting into whatever the new, next new thing was that sort yeah. of along. And there were a couple of years where I hadn't sort of seen him. Uh, I'd moved out of town and then I went back and I sort of, and, um, he knew, and I remember because he was very, he was very kind of almost angry about the fact that uh, pop, you know, pop had just kind of would never be able to improve on all the fantastic things it had given us in the early eighties, and and I just thought at that moment, oh, okay, that's kind of that's you are effectively you're going to play that tape, you're going to be the guy who <laughs> with the tape that is only going to listen to that for the rest of his life. And that's kind of a melancholy thing sometimes, you know. I guess it depends on the context, really. But, I, um, funnily enough, there's a line in Last Night in Soho, which is that it, it, it's used in a different context, but it, <laughs> in a different way. I remember that when I was uh, when I was a teenager, I used to listen to a lot of songs that were before my time. There was an element where that some of the modern music was, um, I guess I needed to be weaned onto it because I was a little kind of... Um, trepidatious about a lot of it especially that indie and it, it I, I can explain what how I got into it separately but but one of the things that's in the movie is I remember that I was at a house party and I had put the music on and my tape that I had was like 60s songs like it had I think it was literally playing Victoria by the Kinks yeah. um but this is a party in 1990 and yeah. one of my friends Gavin like said he goes who put this on <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, he goes, what's, he goes, why are you listening to this old music? <laughs> like, and he was uh, just frankly appalled that a 1990 house party where maybe you would be listening to Soul to Soul or something like that. It's like, why is Victoria by the, he didn't know what the song was. He just knew no. that it wasn't right <laughs> in his head. Oh man, you have to really have a lot of front to kind of come back from that though. I think I would have just slunk off and gone to another party. Um, well, in, in Last Night in Soho, this doesn't spoil anything, but there is a there is a scene where somebody is listening to 60s music and yeah. another person at a party, actually they're listening to it on their headphones and somebody steals the headphones off them. And when they hear what the song is, which is a 60s song, he goes, why are you listening to this granny shit? <laughs> <laughs> which what? is something where... <laughs> That's that thing where some people are just like mortally offended at hearing something old, you know, when you're a teenager, when you're a teenager, let me stress that the the, both both the scene in the movie and when it happened to me, I was like 16 and in in the in the scene in the movie, they're like 18 year olds. Well, I don't think it happens so much anymore now because teenagers can access music from all eras. There isn't that sort of uh, uh, value judgment, the, you know, the distinction you make between new stuff and old stuff. You sort of you're into both simultaneously. Um, yeah. You 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 mentioned last night in Soho, um, which must have been must be a huge thrill for you, given that you sort of you spend most of your you live in Soho, don't you? You spend most of your time in Soho. Yeah, I lived just, well. I just lived just north of it, but it's 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 literally seconds away. Yeah. And <laughs> um, what can you? I mean, what what are you able to? So to tell us about uh, about the film, well, you know, it's it's out quite soon now, isn't it? It comes out at the end of October. I mean, I guess I'm, one of the things I, I mean, I haven't I haven't even kind of got my um, brain into the gear of promoting the other movie yet. Yeah. It's something where I'm going to have that thing where it's like I just need to kind of like press the reset button and then start talking about the other movie. But one thing I will say though is that you know, in the movie, like the lead character. Um, played by Thomas and McKenzie is able to 
travel back to the 60s. And in a way, like music is always a part of that. And in, in a way where music transports you back. And so in that kind of thing where you're having those idealistic daydreams of being able to go back in time, hmm. usually um, the, the song is the time travel machine. The, mu- the song is your TARDIS to get you back there. And so that's sort of a similar thing in, in the movie is that like any, any time that we go from the modern day into the 60s is through a song. And, and that's something that I feel very sort of keenly whenever I listen to music from that period. It sort of sends me hurtling back to a decade that I wasn't even born in. Yeah. And, 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 and that in itself I find strange is like, you know, that's, that, that thing of like the obsession with something that you was before your time is kind of always curious to me. Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, you're right. You know, I mean, but that's why, and in a way, that's why sometimes I think Penny Lane is the saddest song ever written because it captures it. You know, it's sort of it's it, it's a it's a it's a freeze it's a sort of freeze frame of a moment that you can never go back to. But there it is. You know, you're sort of it's kind of tantalizingly slightly just out of reach. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that like one of the songs like that that I, I really tried to get it into the world's end, but it didn't it didn't fit because we were using 80s, 90s music. Hmm. But um I find the really sad song um is Do You Remember Water by the Kinks? Like that's something that really kind of hits me. And in a weird way, it was never in the world's end because like I said, it we didn't we yeah. were only using 60 songs, but in a weird way, the water like is, is similar to Gary King in the world's end. Like the yeah. I, a whole idea of that song of the cool kid at school, who's, who's not so cool anymore, or, 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 you know, or just kind of that your, your idea of what's called has changed. Yeah. I mean, it's funny with Penny, Penny Lane strikes me as one of those songs where McCartney is writing it about something that didn't even exist at the time that he wrote it. Yeah. It seems, yeah. it's, it's, it seems like the Penny Lane of the forties. Right. Yeah, and you know, uh, and you get that a lot. I mean, Madness were very good at that, weren't they? They sort of with like Our House and um, and Baggy Trousers. Those were songs that almost, you know, they 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 were only even when they were just written five minutes ago. You still felt weirdly nostalgic listening. To yeah, them. Um, it's like an amazing trick, really. You know, I don't. You know, it's beautiful. You know, but um, anyway, yes. Um, so we are, but so just to let's. So we're as we speak now, um, we're sort of on the almost on the eve of the release of the of, of the Sparks Brothers. So what what's what's people's sort of best way to sort of go to to see it? It'll be televised quite soon, won't it? Or will it? Uh, I don't know about the. I, I presume in this day and age, I'm never quite sure what the theatrical windows are anymore. That with cinemas now, that's probably the easiest thing to say, and then it will be on. Uh, you know VOD and stuff like later and there's there's also actually coming out in the autumn is um there's a blu-ray that's coming which actually has a lot of extra material because including a bunch of deleted scenes and things that I just couldn't fit in I also directed an entire concert it was the first thing that I shot for the movie actually is when they were playing in London it was the, the f- very first thing I shot with them was a concert at Kentish Town on their tour for Hippopotamus. Um, so that was great. And it was, you know, we used parts of that concert footage in the movie, but always sitting there, we had this like 90 minute concert and, you know, they were in really great form that night. So 
when we were talking about releasing the DVD Blu-ray, I was like, well, we have to put the concert on. That's just like a no-brainer. It's such a treat for fans to see an entire... And they 20- are amazing. I've seen them live myself. And um, and that is just, you know, Russell's energy, even at this point in time, is just immense. And, and obviously Ron's stage presence. Um, I'm con- I, c- I couldn't get through a fifth of the set as a 47-year-old. How Russell does it. <laughs> in his 70s i have no idea i mean they're ridiculously in shape and in good voice it's i mean i mean that's one of the things i think with sparks is that you know it's it's rare when you get an artist who's been you know gigging since the sort of the early 70s who can still sing like they did it's mm. amazing i know i guess it's it's that that muscle's just been used all the time so it's kind of heightened muscle memory um, Edgar, I, I think our time is up because I know you've got some other interviews today and I don't want to uh, delay your schedule. Thanks for making time to, um, to do this with us. It's hugely appreciated. And Oh, it's always a pleasure. And best of luck with... I don't think you need me to wish you the best of luck because I've seen it and it's fantastic. Um, it's just brilliant storytelling, which is one, you know, even though it's a music documentary, it has that much in common with everything else that you've done. So congratulations and we'll speak oh, soon. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll come back for Soho and we can disappear down the 60s rabbit hole. That would be fantastic. Anytime. All right. Take care, Edgar. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pete. Bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.